it was late, and he was exhausted. Uh, he had just spent a day helping lines and lines and crowds and crowds of needy people who needed him, and so he was at his end mentally, he was at his end physically, emotionally, spiritually. So he crawls into the boat, grabs a cushion, heads to the back of the boat, and before he can even put his head down, he's asleep. Now, 30 minutes later, maybe, or maybe it was an hour or two hours later, no one really knows, but uh, the boat that these folks were in is attacked by a massive tropical storm right in the middle of the sea. His friends freak out, and these are experienced sailors, but they're freaking out, but he's still asleep. So they shake him awake, and they scream at him, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to die? And the man that was exhausted and the man that was asleep rubs his eyes, looks into the face of his friends that are filled with fear, and he looks and gazes upon the seas, and he says, Be still. Peace. And there was this great calm. What if Mark's account isn't highlighting Jesus as God, but Jesus as man? Well, now I got your attention. In other words, what if Jesus is simply doing in that account what Adam was supposed to do? What if Jesus is simply being human? Ah, welcome to the wonderful world of Genesis. Maybe it is Narnia. Maybe animals talk. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Genesis chapter 4, chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 3. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry lands earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, 
and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in their expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God said that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every, true, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and all, <clears throat> excuse me, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Good job. Please be seated. 
So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you grant light? And would you grant heat? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we have to decide something right now collectively as a group. We've got to decide how we're going to read this text. So how are we going to do it? We have to decide whether Genesis 1 through 2 should be read, received, and experienced and felt as if it's art and music or if it's math and engineering. So what say you? Those of you that say it's art and music, get to this side of the room. Those that say it's math and engineering, get on this side of the room. We can't go anywhere till we resolve this. It will determine how you read it. It will determine how you experience it. Genesis 1 and 2 will shape you based on how you approach this text. If you approach it as if it's math and engineering, you're going to be focused, or even maybe a better word is, obsessed about the relationship between science and creation. You're going to be thinking things on the age of the earth. You're going to be consumed with, like, genealogy stuff. You're going to do literal head counts between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12, trying to figure out how many people were on the earth at those times. You will also be consumed with evolution and creation debates. You will also be fixated on weird wooden literalism stuff. And also, you are going to be deeply concerned about the fear. You're going to fear that slippery slope of liberalism. Side note, I've always wondered if there was such a thing as the fear of the slippery side of stupidity. You ever wondered that? There can be that one too, right? Uh, or the fear of making the lesser authority of science authoritative over the greater authority of Scripture, putting Scripture on top of science. We do this when we make the Bible say things about science that it's not saying, and when we do, we end up putting the Bible's authority on a particular view of science, and so when, quote, the biblical science is shown to be inaccurate, then the Bible gets thrown out with it, and that's what Galileo and Copernicus were trying desperately to see not happen, but it did. So just on a side note, we are going to talk about the relationship between science and the Bible, and we do on Wednesday nights at 6 to 7. So come on out at those times. We will look at the connections, the disconnections. We'll talk about, the, we'll talk about like what the views of creation might be, what the biblical views of the days might be. We'll look at some hints and helps from church history on how to look at the text. Uh, we're not afraid of the relationship between science and the Bible. We're going to reserve that to Wednesday nights, though. I'm not going to bring that into this morning. So what if we choose art, though, and music? What if we choose to read Genesis 1 and 2 and experience Genesis 1 and 2 like it's art and like it's music? What would happen to you? You know what would happen? Wonder. Wonder happens. And so the choice is before you this morning. Do you want calculations and analysis? Or do you want beauty and wonder? What's the hardest thing in the world to do? Every one of my kids have said they, wanted to, they were going to play in the NFL when they were young. Every single one of my boys said that. And I say at the time, I hope you do, because I'd love a Hummer. <laughs> but getting to the NFL 
And then even staying in the NFL healthy for three years is almost near impossible. The odds are unbelievable. What about running a 100 meters in nine seconds? What about batting 500 in the major leagues for a whole season? What about being accepted to that small circle of elites in New York City? What about becoming a billionaire? What about eating lutefisk, right? What's the hardest thing in the world to do? What about climbing Everest? Or I even checked, I looked up, I said, what's the hardest piano piece there is? According to Wikipedia, it's this. Kiek Hirosu, Shapurji, Surabajis, Opus, Clavicium Ballisticium, on the piano. <laughs> yeah. You know what the Bible says the hardest thing in the world to do? And it says right from the beginning, all the way through the Bible, it's a theme that runs through the Bible over and over again. It's introduced in Genesis 3. The Bible says the hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. Trust God. One day, an ancient man named Job, who, uh, Job, who was at home on his family ranch, and he was at the main house. They had many houses. He was at the main house. And this, this servant comes running up breathless and bursts out saying, all your livestock and your servants are dead. They're gone. They're lost. What kind of loss are we talking about? Well, the text says 500 yoke of oxen. So if it's yoke, that means these are trained oxen. So these are, these are ox that are the pillar of your agrarian economy, they drive it. And it's a yoke, so it's 500, it's two per yoke, so it's 1,000. So you just lost 1,000 of your hardest workers that drive the economy of your whole family and the whole agriculture and the whole economy in the ancient world in one swoop. Also, we're told he lost five, 500 female donkeys. These are the ones that give you babies. This is another building block of your community. And then multitudes of human beings, servants who took care of them, all of them taken, all of them stolen by desert terrorists. And then while Job is still trying to process this, another servant bursts into the room and says, all your sheep and your servants are lost. And so Job takes a look at him and he looks at him and he noticed that he's smoking, literally smoke coming off him. Because while they were in the fields, lightning struck the fields. And when lightning struck the fields, it created this wall of flame that just gusted up and it marched and outpaced 7,000 sheep and all the servants. They couldn't outrun it. And he survived, but he was standing there smoking because all his clothes were burned off and all his hair on his body was burned off. And now as this naked man is talking to Job, another servant comes in, but he's limping. And this one says, all your camels and all your servants are lost. And it's those dreaded Chaldeans Strategically, they put themselves into three raiding parties and they went through and they slaughtered all the servants and took 3,000 camels. And then the text says, while he was yet speaking, there came another, a last servant. And this servant says, sir, all your children are lost. Seven sons three daughters, his life, his world, his joy. Don't miss that they all died together 
because this was a loving family that really enjoyed being around each other. They were all in the same house celebrating, having a party when a tornado hit and they were all crushed to death. So how do you recover from something like that? The book of Job is called the book of Job for a real reason. Trusting God is the hardest thing to do. So God comes in and he he wants to help Job. And he wants to help Job trust him. So what does God do? You know what he does? He tells him the story of creation. He tells the story of Genesis 1. Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. Do you know that slavery for that long and experiencing it that way in such a ruthless way physically that when it goes in generationally, it's almost like it's, it's psychosomatic. It's almost like it gets into your DNA. It works its way into your body. It gets into your brain chemistry. You have been abused and dehumanized and oppressed and have suffered great loss for 400 years. You, your children, your grandchildren, their children, their grandchildren, their children, and on and on for 400 years. Louis Zamperini in his book, uh, in the book called Broken, Unbroken, it's all documented that he had this relationship, this oppressive, abusive relationship with a Japanese guard named the Bird, which is a good name for him, a really good name for him. Uh, It's a top-tier book. You definitely want to read it if you haven't read it. But he says that the emotional and physical abuse that he suffered at the hand of the bird had worked its way into his soul, that it shattered the core of his being, that he broke inside. (laughs) Generation after generation, of dehumanizing slavery. And then the Israelites have had possibly scraps because there was nothing written. It might have been handed down from parents upon parents upon parents, but all they had was maybe scraps, if that at all, of the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Moses, who doesn't even know who this God is, is confronted. There's a collision with him and God. God shows up and speaks to him, and he doesn't know who he is. And when he's learning who he is, he pieces it all together, and he says this, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, who is that? What am I going to tell them? That great theologian, Golem, says it this way when he was overtaken by the ring. He said, we forgot the taste of bread. (laughs) How does God help Israel trust him? How How does he help people who forget the taste of bread? You know what he does? He gives them Genesis. He tells them the story of creation. What about you? 
Where is it hard for you to trust God? Perhaps you're in that, you, th- you are in that conflict between the Bible and science. And so, I, again, I want to say to you, come out on Wednesday night, 6 to 7. We will wrestle with that relationship. But I also want to say that relationship might not be as bad as you think, even though many on both sides say it's a horrible relationship and that science and the Bible are divorced. I would venture to say they're not. And there's a great thinker who's gone all over the world talking about that relationship, and he says it this way, we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that we have to choose between the two, or that if you want to be a Christian, you will have to be in conflict with science. There is no necessary disjunction between science and devout faith, none whatsoever. In fact, science explores the world of God's revelation and creation, and it's a good world. And it's a good high calling to tap into and release the powers of creation. But where is it hard for you to trust God in your life? Is it with a love relationship, a child, a sin that you love, a stress, a particular stress that keeps you up at night? You just lie awake because you can't sleep stressing over this. A, A traumatic life event, as something traumatic happened to you? Where does your thinking go round and round and round in a tight circle of futility? That's where you're going to find it's hard for you to trust God. Where do your feelings, your emotions get trapped in fear and anxiety and anger and shame and a sense of being a failure? That's going to be a place where it's hard for you to trust God. And here's the point. Genesis 1 is for Job, for Israel, and for you to help you trust him, to help you do the hardest thing in the world there is to do, which is to trust God. And the question is how, and that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time together. We're going to look at three ways that God helps you in Genesis 1 to trust him, But it's the way of art, and it's the way of music. It's the way of wonder. It's not the way of engineering and math and calculus and analysis. So here's how. you got to listen to the text. you got to listen to the text because it's speaking to you. Nine times God speaks, let there be, and there was. Everything in this text is about the Word of God. Everything is about God speaking, and His speaking is His acting, and that His speaking makes things. And the magician's nephew, Diggory, Polly, Uncle Andrew, the cabbie and his horse, and the witch, have gone into a pool in, quote, the world between the worlds. They find themselves in utter darkness with nothing around them besides each other. They are in an empty world, the text says. So in the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing, and it was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from which direction it was coming. It was so beautiful, he could, he could barely bear it. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Stars, constellations, and planets appeared. The eastern skies changed from white to pink and pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to its mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. 
The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot about everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was wide open in song, and it was about 300 yards away. All this time, the lion's song and his stately prowl to and fro, backward, forwards, going on. What was rather alarming was that at each turn, he came a little nearer. When you listened to his song, you heard things he was making up. When you looked around, you saw them. But Diggory and Cabby could not help but feeling a bit nervous as each turn of the lion's walk brought him nearer to them. As for Uncle Andrew, his teeth were just chattering, but his knees were shaking so he couldn't run away. <laughs> then there came a swift flashlight fire, but it burnt nobody. Either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, speak. And it did. The world of the word is a spoken world. God speaks a spoken world. The world that we live in holds together because it's spoken. Its DNA is spoken. And God is saying to Israel, and God is saying to Job, and God is saying to you and me, trust my words. My words speak worlds of life into you, worlds of wonder into you, worlds of love into you, worlds of power into you. My words make things out of nothing. Trust, trust my words. Feel the text. Listen to the text because it's speaking to you. Feel the text because it's loving you. Did you see that? Six times in Genesis 1, it says that God saw and it was good. Six times, nine times it says, let there be and there was. Six times he saw it's good. And when it says it's good, what God is doing is he's, he's taking creation into his heart. Creation has his heart. He loves his creation. He approves it. He accepts it. He delights in it. He sings over it. He praises it. He looks at it, and it has his complete and total welcome and acceptance. But not only that, running through the final, the final, it is good is a last, it is very good. Because at the last day, he makes, on the sixth day, he makes his masterpiece and says it is very good. So he's saying to all his creatures, certainly, and then his, his masterpiece, you and me, you are very loved. You are very accepted. You are very delighted in. And then when you look at the structure of the text, it kind of it hangs underneath the first five books of the Bible. You can't see it like it's not saying, I'm here. It's the way it's organized. The first five books of the Bible are a treaty. And what God is saying is that I've made a treaty with you. Theologians call it a covenant. 
And God is saying, I am binding myself to my creatures. I bind myself to creation in love. It is a legal and it is a loving reality. He gives himself to us legally. He gives himself to us lovingly. There's no false dichotomies between the legal and the loving. I mean, I, you hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. I talk to folks all the time, say, listen, we don't need to get married. It's just legal. We love each other. I said, well, that's not going to last. I'll tell any girl, honey, if he just says he loves you and is not going to give you a ring, you leave that dude. He doesn't love you. Or he'd, he'd commit himself to you. And then there's the other that says, listen, it's all about being legal, man. Hey, we got a contract. No passion, no love, no affection. That's not going to last either. Because with God, there's no false dichotomy between legal and loving. When he binds himself to you, he just formed the deepest realities and relationship there are. And that's what he's done here. And that's why, that's why Jesus entered the world. That's why Jesus lived and died and rose he didn't come into this world to get God to commit himself to you and to love you. He came into this world because God was committed to you and the world and loves you. That's why Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus didn't come to get God to love you. Jesus came because God loves you. God saw that it was very good because he really does love the world. So God is saying by feeling the text, listen to the text so that we trust his words. Feel the text so we trust his love. His love goes all the way, 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 way back to the beginning. His love is actually, he's committed himself to creation. He will not let it go. Last, you got to see the text. And this is where all the controversy is, but... Again, we'll deal with the controversy on Wednesday night. I'm not going to deal with it here. Did you notice that it's all about a throne? Music, right? Art. Days one and three are about creating kingdoms. Do you see that? The first kingdom is light on the first day. The second kingdom is sky on the, on the second day. The third kingdom is sea and dry land on the third day. Days four through six. So the first three days are about God creates kingdoms. And then four through six, he creates the kings to rule the kingdoms. Day four, he puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the kingdom of light. And day five, he puts the kings of flying, the, the flying winged creatures to rule the skies. Day six, or actually on day five, he fills the kingdom of the seas with swimming creatures. That's probably the Leviathan and Megalodon and the great white. They rule the seas. And then on day six, he gives the, the kings of the dry land, the creatures of the ground, and the creepy creatures. And then to summarize it all, he makes his masterpiece, the ones that will rule the earth, the ones that will rule them all, man and woman, woman and man in the image of God. But did you notice there's a seventh day? Look at this. 
Genesis 2, 1 through 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, okay, that's six days, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. The rest here is not because God is fatigued. The rest here is not that he got tired. The rest here is the king is done. The rest here is a coronation. The rest here is God taking his throne over the world because though there are little kings in little kingdoms, there's one king that rules them all. And don't miss this in the text. It's the key to perhaps all the conflict in the text. In the first six days, there is a refrain after every day. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Did you see there is no refrain on the seventh day? Did you see that? It's missing. Because on day seven, the king of kings, the king of the world, takes his throne and is seated forever. Yes, Job, I was on my throne when every one of those servants came to you. (laughs) Yes, Israel, I was on my throne for 400 horrible, dark years. I never stepped off my throne. The hardest thing in the world to do is trust God, and God knows that, so he gives you and me the story of creation. He gives us a story that highlights his words. He gives you the story that highlights his love. He gives you the story that's historical, it's real, he did it, that highlights his throne. And people who learn to trust God, like when we start learning to trust his words, his love, and his, his ruling kingship, his power, his sovereignty, how he's the cosmic king, when we learn to do that, we end up participating in God's mission in the world. We start loving the world back to life again. Do you know that God has embedded and infused propensities and properties and proportions of power and beauty and wonder that are in the world? And you and I have the privilege of loving it to life again. We have the privilege of walking up to a human being, another human being, an image bearer, and love them to life again. In fact, Abraham Kuyper says it this way, God crowns creation with humanity who awakens its life, who arouses its powers, and with human hands brings to light the glory that once lay locked in its depths. So where does God have you to love others to life again? Where does he have you to love creation to life again? Is it a child? Is it someone at work that you can help succeed, that they could succeed? Is it someone who is needy and needs to be listened to? And if you're honest, they're always needy. But they still need to be listened to and brought back to life. Or how about 
And I love this. This came from Keller, and it, I still I can't stop thinking about it. How about letting a tree just be a tree? A tree has power and beauty and wonder in it. Let the tree be itself. Let money be itself. Let engineering be itself. Let music, let art, let reading, let Tolkien, let Harry Potter be itself. But instead, there's this great conflict that we have with creation. Creation groans because we won't let it be itself. We're trying to make it something it can't be. We're trying to make it our God. And it groans under that weight. We take the tree and say, listen, you've got to, I need you to be more productive because I need more money. And the tree's not a tree anymore. What if, as we learn to trust God, his words, his love, his power, we love things back to life again? I want you to look at day seven again. It's in two verses one through three. You see that? I lied. Sorry, but I'm telling you now, confessing it. Uh, There was a time when God left his throne. And he walked all the way to Jerusalem. Through town, to the outskirts of town, to a place called the skull. And he stepped on the exact opposite of a throne. He was hung on a cross. And when he was, he took the whole of creation that he has loved from the beginning and had committed himself to that he wouldn't let it fall, wouldn't let it fail, and he took all the pitch darkness upon himself and all the evil self-absorption of creation and creatures like us upon himself and all the deadening emptiness of the world upon himself and all the deepest of all sadness of the world upon himself and he healed it. He loved it back to life again. It is this Jesus that Genesis calls you to trust. Trust his words, trust his love, trust his rule on the cross. He's the one that loves you back to life again.